Good morning. Welcome to our uh, service. My name is Dan McDonald. I'm one of the pastors here. We are glad that you are here, wherever you are in your journey of life, wherever you are in your journey of faith. Uh, we are really pleased that you are here. This is a great place to ask and answer the questions about life and God and faith in Jesus. And so I'm glad that you are here. We have a um, message today from 2 Corinthians. We're going through the book of 2 Corinthians, the letter Paul wrote. And we're in 2 Corinthians chapter 4, and now we'll hear the reading of God's Word. Let's go. 2 Corinthians 4, verses 1 to 6. Therefore, having this ministry by the mercy of God, we do not lose heart. But we have renounced disgraceful, underhanded ways. We refuse to practice cunning or to tamper with God's Word. But by the open statement of the truth, we would commend ourselves to everyone's conscience in the sight of God. And even if our gospel is, is veiled, it is veiled only to those who are perishing. In their case, the God of this world has blinded the minds of the unbelievers to keep them from seeing the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. For what we proclaim is not ourselves, but Jesus Christ as Lord, with ourselves as your servants for Jesus' sake. For God who said, let light shine out of the darkness, has shone in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. This is the word of the Lord. Thank you. Well, as I mentioned, we're continuing this series, and this passage brings up an issue that is incredibly relevant for us in our cultural moment. And that is this. What do you do with a culture that by and large is not receptive, may I say, is even resistant to the message of Jesus. This was the issue that Paul faced that he talks about here, and it's the issue that Christians in our culture today face. How do we respond to a resistant culture? Paul says here, three things should be remembered which will help you to live a life of public witness in a place of hostility or resistance to the gospel. And there are these three. Firstly, there are temptations in this context that we must renounce. Secondly, there is a resistance that we must properly understand. And thirdly, there is a response that we should embrace. A temptation to renounce, a resistance to understand, and a response to embrace. These are the three things that Paul reminds us of here in this passage. The first one is the temptations that we should renounce. A few years ago, I was uh, talking with a lay leader, and I was talking about this exact issue, about being public about your faith in the midst of the downtown corporate scene. He said, I work as a junior lawyer in a large uh, law firm downtown, and he said, Dan, I get frustrated when I bring up my faith. Sorry, people get frustrated when I bring up my faith. They think I should keep it private. And honestly, it's just more comfortable to stay in my cubicle, keep my head down, do my work, and go home. I would say this later has put their finger on the main response, the main temptation most of us have. If you're here and you're not a Christian, you resonate with this frustration that people have when people try and tell them about Jesus. Why are you trying to impose your religion on me? That feels regressive and imperialistic of you. We'll talk about that characterization in a few minutes because I think it has flaws. But for those who are 
of us who are Christians, this is our main temptation based on the frustration we face. The main temptation, just keep your head down, do your work, be quiet, go home. Keep your faith hidden inside. And if you do come out and go public with your faith, here's a second temptation. It's a temptation to change the message to the audience, to rub the rough edges off where the message might conflict with the main cultural values. We had a staff meeting this week and we talked about this passage and the staff said both in their lives and in the lives of people we know here at the church, this is our temptation, to rub the rough edges off our faith, to nuance it so it's more acceptable to the culture. So to refine our conduct and to change our message. Those are the two temptations and those are the exact two temptations Paul says that he faces here. In verse 1, he says, Therefore, having this ministry by the mercy of God, we do not lose heart. Here's his summary statement, that there's a temptation to lose heart. And then he goes into the temptations we've just talked to. He says, we've renounced disgraceful, underhanded ways. We refuse to practice cunning. Now, we're not exactly sure what Paul is referring to, but we think we know, because in 1 Corinthians, he talks about a culture back then where traveling speakers, and Paul was seen as sort of a traveling speaker, would come, they would pad their resumes, they would be be careful to present themselves as better than they were, to make themselves acceptable to their audiences, and they would refine their techniques to their audiences so that they could get another speaking gig to be asked back. But it wasn't just their conduct. They would refine their messages to make it more acceptable to the audiences they were speaking to. It's kind of a classic, you know, motivational speaker's technique. Try and make yourself comfortable and influential and even persuasive to your audience. But Paul says, this is the temptation that we face. In our conduct among people, there's a temptation to be sneaky. He calls it underhanded. In our communication with people, there's a temptation to, as he puts it, tamper with God's Word. That word tamper in the Greek was usually used of tampering with wine at events, usually diluting it of its essential properties to to make it go longer for greater profits. Paul says, these are the temptations I face, and these are the temptations you and I face today. Paul says this. If you really want to follow Christ, this means recognizing and renouncing those two temptations, period. It means looking them in the eye, knowing you will be faced with these temptations, and doing what Paul said, refusing and renouncing them. The Greek word there for renounce means to predetermine and plan to avoid doing something that's unethical or shameful. Paul is saying that. And then there's a little word he says at the very end, which gives us the clue to help us unlock how we can do that. He says, Paul says, instead, by the open statement of the truth, we commend ourselves to everyone's conscience in the sight of God. He's saying, we're going to openly admit what we believe. We will tell people what the gospel is. We won't hide it. If they reject our message, so be it. But they won't have any handles to accuse us of anything, of being sneaky. But Paul's also saying something very important in those last words, in the sight of God. 
This is one of the first keys we need to learn here. Paul's audience that he's trying to satisfy is not the culture he lives in. It's not the coworkers or friends that he lives life with. It's God himself. It's God who's watching. It's God who's commissioned him and us to make disciples of all the nations. It's God who's the only audience he's trying to please. Implications. This is for Christians. Here's our temptation in our conduct and in our message to change it, to be comfortable. But the reason we do this is because our primary audience is the culture, and our primary goal is our comfort. And Paul says the solution is change your audience. It will change your goal. My audience is God. I am looking for the applause of God himself and him alone. And when you do that, the audience and their resistance will diminish in power in your eyes. The obstacle of their lack of receptivity will shrink in your view. But if you don't get this right, if you don't make God your audience, you will not prevail as a generation, as a culture, in being public witnesses for the glory of God in your generation. But the beauty of this is if we do get it right, we know that God has us. He's always had us. He has this. He sent Jesus to die for us. He sent Jesus to rise for us. He has his people. No one can snatch us out of his hand. Why are we afraid? The temptations we must renounce to reshape our conduct or reshape our message to make the culture happy and to make us comfortable. Remembering God is our audience. Secondly, Paul says, there's a resistance we must understand because there is a resistance. But he says here in verse 3, even if our gospel is veiled, it is veiled, who? To those who are perishing. In their case, the God of this world has blinded the minds of unbelievers to keep them from seeing the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. Now here's the heart of the issue. It's understanding what the resistance of the gospel is based on. And it's extraordinary, so we're going to dwell for a few moments. For those of you who've been tracking with us through the series, you heard Stephen say last week that Paul's using this term veiled out of Jewish imagery. This is part of Jewish religious history. It's the veil that Moses wore when he came out of the tabernacle and speaking with God. Paul used Jewish imagery, this veil, to describe the spiritual condition of religious Jewish people. But here, Paul's expanding the imagery to include every human heart. Paul now applies the veil imagery to every ethnicity, every nation. Paul admits that a lot of people do not respond to become Christian and then gives the central reason. And the central reason, men and women, is not because you don't have the right words as a Christian. The central reason is not because you've done something to offend them. The central reason is not the misconduct of the church. That's what the culture tells us. It's not. Paul says the gospel is veiled to those who are perishing, who are not believing in Jesus, 
because the God of this world has blinded their minds to keep them from seeing Jesus clearly. There is where the veil is centered. You see, Paul was being accused of not being an authentic apostle, partly because he wasn't seeing many converts. His lack of success was proving he wasn't really an apostle. And he says, no, 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 you're missing this. The issue is in the minds and the heart of the people who are hearing, and I submit to you this is powerfully subversive and prophetic to our present moment, both inside and outside the church, because we're both believing the same narrative, and here it is. For you who are outside the church, you will get this quite quickly, because the average Toronto resident, as I've experienced them, and as the media characterizes them, calls and thinks of Christianity as primitive, regressive, and imperialistic. It belongs in the dustbin of history. We've moved past these colonialist eras when religions should be able to impose their beliefs on large swaths of people. That, we believe, is the veil. And we Christians have bought that narrative that our skeptical culture says is the veil. Now, I want to say this very clearly. We do seem regressive to our culture. We do uphold historic Christian beliefs. We do believe God created the world, not chance, time. We do believe that God made us male and female. We do believe that sexual activity, according to the gospel, is to be limited to the covenant bed of a man and a woman who've covenanted to live together in marriage. And we know that these run counter to our culture. But the gospel says this is not why the culture is rejecting Jesus. And if you're here and you're a skeptic, it's not why you are either. Paul just used the veil imagery to apply to people who are very religious, Jewish people. Now he's using it to anybody, including people who are very irreligious or secular. How can that be? How can it be the same? Because Paul, if Paul were here right now and he looked at our present culture, you know what he would say? He'd say, meh. This secular culture is just like the highly religious cultures that I faced in my day. We'd be shocked. How could we be like these primitive, superstitious people of the Roman Empire of thousands of years ago? And I think Paul would say this. Every person I've ever met at their heart believes in some kind of religion. They were all different back then. Roman Empire had tons of them. But underneath, they were all very much the same because all religions operate on the same basic principles. Firstly, they believe you earn your identity with whatever deity exists. You do X, and your deity will approve of you. You do Y, and he won't. They all believed in doing to earn the approval of whatever God they believed in. They believed, in other words, in what that great theologian Bono of U2 calls karma. This is Bono talking about how he sees the world. He says, you see, at the center of all religions is the idea of karma. You know, what you put out comes back to you, an eye for an eye, a tooth for a tooth. It's clear to me that karma is at the very heart of the universe. I'm absolutely sure of it. And yet, Along comes this idea of grace, that's the gospel, to upend all this you reap what you sow stuff. You see, grace defies reason and logic. 
Love interrupts, if you will, the consequences of your actions, which in my case is very good news indeed, he says, because I've done a lot of stupid stuff, but I'd be in big trouble if karma was going to finally be my judge. I submit to you, karma is our judge in every religion and in our present culture. In our culture, you get what you deserve. You earn your marks. You earn your pay. You earn your cultural capital by having the right opinions about the right social and cultural issues, and you are punished if you don't, period. Try running for political office without the appropriate views on the appropriate things. You will not get far in this city. You can be punished for being racist. You can be punished for being insufficiently anti-racist. You can be punished for being unknowingly heteronormative. We live in one of the least forgiving, most performance-driven cultures I've ever experienced in my life. And Paul would say, welcome to the club. That's how religions act. By the way, I submit to you, I think our present secular culture is pretty imperialistic as well. We demand that all beliefs, all religions, all expressions of political or cultural positions must have these three things or they're not acceptable. They must believe as we believe in the kind of diversity, inclusivity, and tolerance that we espouse. You can believe whatever you want as long as you obey these big three. You've got to change what you believe to make sure you fit our view of diversity, inclusivity, and tolerance. Now, I believe in a lot of the diversity, inclusivity, and tolerance that our culture does, but I don't like the imperialism of forcing it upon people's consciences because that's just like religion. And Paul would say, bingo, if the veil fits, put it on. You may call yourself secular. You may call yourself not religious at all. But if you believe that I do X to achieve the approval of whatever you think runs the universe, if you believe that certain things are out of bounds and you should have no ability to move forward unless you have beliefs A, B, and C, then you're acting just like any other religion. And that's the point Paul is making here. If it walks like a duck, acts like a duck, quacks like a duck, if the veil fits, put it on. Here's the key. The problem with the gospel is that it's not religion because the gospel says you cannot earn God's approval and you never will be able to. You're too selfish. You're too sinful. You will always fail. All have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. You have to humble yourself and say, I can't get there because I don't deserve it. I need forgiveness and grace. And that is not religion. That is grace. And that is so humbling and so countercultural to our human desire to be able to be proud of ourselves. That's your veil, your pride, your desire to be acceptable in your own effort. That's the same veil that Paul faced that every religion has. Paul would say, your veil is the veil I saw. It's the veil of self-effort and pride. Religion, by any name you give it, 
tries to earn the acceptance of whatever or whomever rules the world. The gospel, in contrast to every religion, including the secular version we see today, says that the infinitely perfect God of the universe is the one who judges not me and you, and we don't make it. And, 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 by the way, if you think that you should deserve it, you're listening to a lie that someone's feeding your ears. And his name is the evil one. There is a devil, and he is speaking to you, to all of us. Skeptic, you need to hear this. You are prone to be deceived just like anybody else, to be veiled as it is spoken of here. The same veil that tripped these religious people up is the same veil that tempts you and can trip you up. Doubt your doubts. They're not as rigorous as you think they are. Now, Christian, I want you to hear this, and I really want you to hear this carefully. The truth about this veil is actually freedom for you and me. Paul is telling us it's not because of the way you say things or don't. It's not how much you know and how many answers you can give. It isn't that. People are not responding because of you. It isn't because we're sinful and we've done all kinds of terrible things and evil things. The church has, by the way, in history. We need to admit it. Just being honest, we need to admit of the horrors of the residential school system and many other things throughout history. But those sins and that wrong, though they are that sinful and that wrong, they're not why the veil exists. The veil exists because sin exists. The veil exists because pride is embedded deeply in every human heart. The desire to gain approval by what I do. So hear me now. Christians, we have a great tendency for self-critique. I, I know. In my life, I've been a theist, then an agnostic, then an atheist, then a classic social and political liberal, then a progressive activist, then a born-again Christian fundamentalist, then a political conservative, then a politically more moderated Presbyterian Christian minister. I've been a lot of things. And by far, of all the tribes that I've just mentioned, by far... The Christian ones are the most open and most willing to critique themselves. It's not even close. That's good and should continue. But, but there seems to be an unintended consequence. There is an overfixation by the church on what we need to stop doing and start doing. We keep looking at technique to try and fix this lack of responsiveness. And we start to fall into that pattern of performance. Listen, there's a whole cottage industry of ministries that are, that are based on telling you what we're doing wrong and what we need to do right. I've lived through many of them. Power evangelism, the seeker-sensitive movement, the missional church, the incarnational church, the latter-day apostolic movement, the worship revolution, the house church, the social justice church, and many more. These movements live by critiquing the church and offering solutions. And after a while, with all this critique, you begin to believe it's all about what we're doing and not doing, and we get into technique and into performance, 
And we start to go down the road of deception. And here's what Jesus says about the hostility. It's because you didn't do the house church movement of the 1990... No. John 15. If the, I don't... By the way, I'm not mocking the house church movement. But John 15 says, If the world hates you, know that it has hated me before it hated you. If you are of the world, the world would love you as its own. But because you are not of the world but I chose you out of the world, therefore the world hates you. Men and women, the veil ain't about you. So I have a word for you. Relax. God has this. The lack of responsiveness is normal. Hostility to the message has always been there. It's a normal part of what it means to be a Christian. It's not primarily about you. It's about Jesus that the world has issues with. It is about the world's pride and desire to deserve God's approval. And Jesus saying, no, you can't. I've done it for you. Now suck up your pride. Find your humility. Admit it and come to me. That doesn't mean we should stop sharing, by the way. When I say relax, I mean it's an invitation to share our faith. It just means we leave the results to God. Share your faith openly, trusting that God will deal with the results. I had uh, my first pastoral job uh, after seminary. I was uh, with the senior pastor and... um, we were talking after a couple of years because he said, Dan, I noticed you share your faith fairly regularly and kind of aggressively, even with strangers. Why do you do that? And I said, well, I kind of noticed you hardly share your faith. So now that we say that, why don't you? And we had this very mutually interesting conversation because he kind of shrugged his shoulders and he said, well, I guess I'm discouraged by the lack of response. I said, really? What's your response? Response is, well, I, I think I shared Christ with maybe 100 people in my life. I'm a pastor. I said, and how many people came to faith? Well, I, somewhere between 14 and 22 of them. I said, so 14 to 22% response rate. Yeah. You know the most famous evangelist we've ever heard of, Billy Graham, his response rate's under 4%. You know that, right? He goes, oh, yeah. I said, you know, I've shared Christ with I shared my faith with well over a 1,000 people. I don't think I've seen more than 1% of them become Christians, maybe two. He said, really? I said, yeah, you may actually have seen more people become Christians than I have. Really? I said, yeah. He said, well, I, I, I guess I just have been looking at the response and the lack of it. What keeps you going? And I started to cry a little bit. I probably will now. The reason I share my faith is because Jesus has changed my life. And that's our third point, the reason we embrace despite the resistance. Look what Paul says. For what we proclaim is not ourselves, but Jesus Christ as Lord, with ourselves as your servants, for Jesus' sake. For God who said, let light shine out of darkness, has shone in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. Paul says that in light of the truth that the, that the 
Culture is not responsive, and the truth that there's a veil that stops people from coming, that he has no control, he finds his motivation in the beauty of Jesus and the glory that he sees. We proclaim Jesus as Lord and ourselves as fellow servants for your sake, but we proclaim not our greatness. We're just servants proclaiming his. And then Paul says, this is why I can't stop telling people Because God has shone in my heart the light of the knowledge of the glory of God. In the face of Jesus, this this is some of the most beautiful language in the whole New Testament. Here's where Paul gets to the essence of why the apostles keep sharing despite the afflictions, the difficulties, and the resistance. They've seen his glory through Jesus. Listen, when you become a Christian, several things happen to you according to the gospel. The first thing, the foundational thing, is that your sins are forgiven. That's the the one we all know. God demonstrates his love toward us, and that while we were sinners, Christ died for us. Your sins are forgiven by his death. He paid for you. That's extraordinary. All my wrongdoing is forgiven. That's the foundation, but it's not the last and only thing. Many other things happen as well. Romans 8 tells us that because our sins are forgiven, we become the adopted children of God. For you did not receive the spirit of slavery to fall back into fear, but you've received the spirit of adoption as children by whom we cry, Abba, Father. The Spirit bears witness with ours that we're children of God. We have peace with God. We're His adopted beloved. We experience His fatherly love and care. Isn't that amazing? But that's not all. We get to experience and see the glory of God. Last week, Stephen shared about Moraine Lake being on his bucket list. It's a glorious place. I resonated so much because it was on mine. And I remember going there and, and, and going to Lake Louise and then getting to Moraine Lake on the second day with a small group of people. And when I got there, I said, I'm sorry, guys, I need to leave you. And they said, why? And they, I said, because your voices are bugging me. And they, they said, What? I said, this is too glorious a place. I need silence to appreciate it. So I walked away. I didn't want anything to get into the way of me experiencing and immersing myself in the glory of that moment. And Moraine Lake on a sunny day is unbelievable. Men and women, Moraine Lake on its best day is nothing compared to the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. When I got to Moraine Lake and I immersed myself, I didn't want to leave. When Peter saw the transfigured glory of Jesus on the Mount of Transfiguration, he didn't ever want to leave. He said, let's build, let's build some tents and stay here a while. This is what Jesus does to us. He reveals God in all of his beauty and glory and mercy and infinite beauty and grace. When you see that, you never want it to end, and you want to share it. Here, Paul uses language that reminds us of Genesis 1. 
He says, God who said, let light shine into darkness. That's the language of God in Genesis 1 in the creation of the world, creating something new, light out of darkness. He says that he is now creating light in the darkness of your soul. He's doing a work of creation a work of new creation, the very glory of God that in Genesis 1, it says, when that happened, the angels sang for joy in the creation. The angels sang for joy in the recreation of the glory of God of your new soul when you became a Christian. Isn't that beautiful? That glory is in the face of Jesus. And when it fills you, you can't keep it to yourself. If you're here and you are not yet a Christian, I want to ask for you to do something for me. Don't get frustrated when we share the beauty of Jesus with you. You have heard people like Stephen talk about Moraine Lake. I had friends, I remember, telling me about the Grand Canyon. It's another of my bucket list places. I'd love to go. And they're going on and on in their helicopter ride, and they just can't stop babbling about it, and I don't care because I've seen pictures that I know how beautiful the Grand Canyon is. I know how glorious it is. I know how real the glory was. I will let them talk about it. They can't stop, and I will let them. I don't get frustrated. When Christians share the glory of Jesus to you, don't get frustrated. It's the most glorious thing in their life. See and understand from their perspective they're only sharing the glory they want you to have. And Christians, fill yourself up with the glory of Jesus and you will share despite the veil. You won't change your conduct and you won't change the message because the glory is too beautiful to be obscured. Let us pray. Father, I thank you and I praise you for your goodness and your greatness to us. Would you please now, by your grace, help us to see the glory of God in Jesus and help us to pass it on that you might be praised. Amen. I've got a couple questions here. Why is it okay for uh, LGBTQ plus people to be so vocal in public about who they are, but when it comes to Christianity, uh, society shuns us, and when we publicly announce? It is, uh, that's a great question. I think every society sort of decides what things are okay and what things aren't. When I was growing up in the 70s and 80s, it wasn't okay to be speaking about uh, being LGBTQ or gay. Um, it was okay to say you're a Christian. It's switched. That's what happens in societies. Uh, it's not to be unexpected. Um, is it a double standard? Probably. The double standard was in our favor for a lot of history. It's against us now. Uh, I understand the double standard is wrong. It is. We just need to understand the double standard almost always exists. We live in pharisaical and hypocritical societies. We just have to deal with it. Who veils us to the gospel, God or the spiritual forces of this world? The spiritual forces of this world. Great question. How can we pray for those who we understand have had their minds blinded by the devil? This is exactly what we need to do is pray. That's what we need to do. That's the difference. 
I don't know why. He says, how can, he or she says, how can we eradicate the defeatist mentality? Well, I'm hoping if you take my three points, it will start to eradicate the defeatist mentality. If you realize God is your audience, you'll renounce the temptations. If you realize this veil isn't of your doing, keep going. And if you realize this glory is too good to keep to yourself, you'll keep going. That's how you eradicate it. Let's pray. Father, I thank you and praise you for your goodness to us. We thank you for the glory of Jesus. Help it to capture us anew. I'm tired of hearing about what the church has done wrong. I want to hear about the head of the church and what he's worth sharing. Help us to do that, we pray in Christ's name. Amen.